Everybody else, uh, good morning, and uh, it's good to see you all here. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ron Clifton. I'm one of the ruling elders here at Potomac Hills, and it is my privilege and honor to be asked to bring you this, uh, this message. Uh, before we start, uh, let me wish all the dads out there happy Father's Day. I hope your day is filled with fun and family and rest. Um, I know I'm looking forward to talking to my dad and talking to my girls. Um, we are in Psalm 32, so if you'll turn there. Uh, this is our third uh, sermon in our summer series on Psalms. And this message is entitled, Prayer for Our Repentance. And it's also the first of five ruling elder sermons that you'll hear this summer. Uh, all four of the ruling elders here at Potomac Hills will, uh, will be preaching. And we have a, a familiar guest coming in. Uh, James Murphy will also be preaching. So I guess I'm batting lead off. So, for all you baseball fans, that's your baseball reference for today. Unfortunately, there are no baseball references in my sermon, but I worked one in anyway. All right, so, as I said, we're in Psalm 32. Um, let's do something different. Let's uh, all rise for the reading of God's Word. All right, Psalm 32, verses 1 through 11. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the ways you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this Lord's Day and for this Father's Day and for bringing us together to hear your word and worship you. Today you have brought us to Psalm 32, 
a psalm of David that gives testimony of his journey from covering his sin and dealing with the consequences to confessing his sin and experiencing the blessing of forgiveness and joy of a restored relationship with you. Father, like David, we are a sinful people who at times cover our sins. Help us to see the seriousness of our sin that we might forsake it and turn to you in repentance, finding forgiveness and the joy of restoration. As always, help us to see Jesus so that we may more fully understand all he has done for us, providing the way to return to you. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. In Shakespeare's Macbeth, there is a dramatic scene that illustrates the need for repentance. Lady Macbeth, the ambitious and ruthless wife of the play's main character, is racked with guilt over her part in the murder of King Duncan, and begins a slow slide into madness. One night, as she sleepwalks and hallucinates, she recalls her crimes. In anguish, she attempts to wash the blood from her hands. However, there is no soap strong enough to remove the stain of her guilt, so she cries out, Out, damned spot! As I said in my uh, email, in the, in the heart prep email for the week, um, guilt is a powerful feeling. It can have a profound effect on us. As sinful human beings, we cannot escape guilt. Guilt can affect us both physically and psychologically. The question you must ask is, what do I do with my guilt? As believers, we know the answer to that question. We repent. But what happens when we hold on to our sin and don't repent? What are the consequences of not repenting? How bad can it be? These questions are addressed in our text for today from Psalm 32, a psalm written by King David. Psalm 32 can be interpreted in connection with Psalm 51, David's psalm of repentance written after the sins of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband uh, Uriah. David tried to conceal his sin and cover it up. But Nathan the prophet came to him and exposed his sin in 2 Samuel 12. Upon being confronted, David confessed his sin and was restored. Most likely, Psalm 32 was written after Psalm 51 and may be the fulfillment of David's promise that he made in Psalm 51.13 when he said, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. This psalm, addressed primarily to believers, instructs us regarding the negatives of unconfessed sin and the positives of confessed sin that we might learn from David's experience. The Apostle Paul quotes the first two verses of Psalm 32 in Romans 4, 7, and 8 as he instructs us about salvation. He says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul links David's words to Abraham in Genesis 15 when he teaches about Abraham being justified by faith. Psalm 32 was Augustine's favorite psalm. He had it inscribed on the wall next to his bed 
before he died in order to meditate on it better. He liked it because he said, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. It is vitally important that we grasp the significant impact that sin has on all aspects of our lives. Without this understanding, we really can't appreciate how wonderful forgiveness is. Two weeks ago, Dr. Dave said, prayer is the lifeblood of the believer. And I believe this to be true, but I also think that our most important prayer is a prayer of repentance. Psalm 32 is a prayer that teaches us the value of repentance and the consequence of when it's withheld. In this psalm, David weaves together wonderful imagery and word pictures to capture his experience, both in concealing and confessing his sin. As we work our way through the text, we will examine the blessing of forgiveness, the need for repentance, and the result of repentance. We will see repentance as the key that moves believers from the misery of guilt to the blessedness of forgiveness. We will also see Jesus and his role in forgiveness. So, let's begin with the blessing of forgiveness in verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. To know the blessing of forgiveness, we need to feel the burden of guilt. Until we feel the burden of guilt, we can't truly exclaim with David the blessedness of forgiveness. Guilt should drive us to forgiveness. The only cure for guilt is forgiveness, and the only necessity for Forgiveness is repentance. Let me repeat that. The only cure for guilt is forgiveness, and the only necessity for forgiveness is repentance. The goal of repentance is restoration of fellowship with God. The blessing of forgiveness is one of the foundational aspects of the Christian faith. The word blessed found in both Psalm 32 and Psalm 1 refers to complete wellness of being and profound fulfillment. In Psalm 1, the blessing is given to the man who never sins, which, of course, excludes us. The psalmist refers to the perfect man who we now know as Jesus. However, in Psalm 32, the blessing is is given to the man who is far from perfect. This man sins but repents, and God forgives him. So he knows the joy of restoration. Verses 1 and 2 pronounce a double blessing to the man who forgive, who God forgives. And this forgiveness is full forgiveness. These two verses are examples of Hebrew poetic parallelism. The words used for sin are not synonyms of each other. And the words used for forgiveness are not synonyms of each other. Rather, they are words intentionally chosen to cover the full scope of our sin and the full spectrum of God's forgiveness. For us to fully comprehend the blessedness of forgiveness, we need to understand the significance of our sin. 
This is what Jesus meant in Luke 7.47 when he said, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. If we have a sober realization of our utter sinfulness, we too will love much. In verses 1 and 2, we find three words used for sin and three words used for pardon. The three words used for sin are, number one, transgression, which has to do with rebellion against God and against his authority. This describes our relationship with God. Number two, sin. This has to do with missing the mark. We fall short of God's law and are condemned for it. This describes our relationship with God's law. Number three, iniquity, which means corrupt, twisted, or crooked. It indicates every kind of sin. This describes sin's relationship to us and its effect on us. David matches these three words for sin with three words for pardon. Number one, forgiven, which means to lift or carry away, such as lifting off a weight. Before we confess, we bear the weight of sin as a burden. But when confessed, God lifts the weight off of our shoulders. Number two, cover, which means to put out of sight. God puts our sins out of his sight. He will never bring up our sins as a matter of judgment again. If you are in Christ, your sins are covered by his blood. And finally, number three, count, which is a bookkeeping term where something is charged to your account. All right, so consider this illustration. You go into your favorite store and you run up an enormous bill, one that you could never repay. And instead of the store charging your account, the the store charges it to a wealthy individual who, by the way, is willing to pay. This is what God has done for us in Christ. We have a sin debt that we can never repay, but Jesus paid the debt. Martin Luther addressed this by saying, sin has but two places where it may be. Either it may be with you so that it lies upon your neck, or upon Christ, the Lamb of God. If now it lies upon your neck, you are lost. If, however, it lies upon Christ, you are free and will be saved. Verse 2 also addresses who receives this blessing of forgiveness, the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. The deceit here doesn't refer to lying to others, but rather lying to God and to ourselves. As it is found in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Deceit is the fourth word that David uses in conjunction with sin. This has to do with our tendency to cover up our sin. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The one who is forgiven is transparent with God about his sin. Tim Keller stated it this way, if we cover our sins, God will expose them. But if we expose our sin to him, 
he will cover them. Okay, so we've looked at the blessing of forgiveness. Now we move on and see the need for repentance in verses 3 through 7. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away as my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time where you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. In verses 3 through 5, David describes his experience of unconfessed sin and the immediate result of confessing his sin. The impact of unconfessed sin in the life of the believer is clearly described here. David depicts these effects as his bones wasting away and his strength drained from him as from summer heat. All right, so here's a question. Have you ever worked outside in the summertime when it's really hot? Uh, I have, and in fact, when I work in my yard too long, I begin to feel weak and lethargic, especially as I get older. My legs get heavy and I start moving very slow. So I understand what David is referring to as he describes the effects of unconfessed sin in his life. These physical effects were the direct result of God's heavy hand of judgment on David. God cannot and will not ignore sin in the life of his in the life of uh, his people. He brings pressure with his heavy hand and sometimes acute pressure until we acknowledge our sin, confess it, forsake it, and return to him. So let's take a moment to explore what repentance is in more detail. In Scripture, repentance means to undergo a change of one's mind. The Reformation Study Bible describes this change of mind not as a mere switching of minor opinions, but of the entire direction of one's life. It involves a radical turning from sin into Christ. Theologians make a distinction between two kinds of repentance. Number one, attrition. This is a false repentance that involves remorse caused by a fear of punishment or a loss of blessing. This was a type of repentance Esau exhibited in Genesis 27 over the loss of his birthright. Number two, contrition. This is true or godly repentance that includes a deep remorse for having offended God because ultimately our sin is an offense against God. The contrite person openly and fully confesses his sin with no attempt to excuse it or justify it. This is the repentance David refers to in verse 2 and the repentance he described in Psalm 51.17 when he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
Psalm 51 is David's great psalm of repentance where he lays out his anguish and heartfelt remorse over the sins, over his sins with Bathsheba and Uriah. Psalm 51 is a perfect model of godly repentance and I encourage all of you to spend some time and study it in more detail. As for us, we need to look closely at our repentance. If we examine the sorrow for our sin, we are likely to find bad motives and imperfections. George Whitfield said, My repentance needs to be repented of. I cannot repent except I sin. This is a sobering statement that might cause you to ask, So, Ron, why repent? My answer would be, we repent to get our relationship back, to get our fellowship back, to get our intimacy back with God. Our sinfulness requires daily, even continuous repentance. Yes, we need to be a people of prayer, but we also need to be a people of repentance, recognizing our need for repentance as we realize the significance of our sin. We need the mindset that our identity is not in being a virtuous person or a together person or a moral person, but our identity needs to be in God's love for us. That's who we truly are. Now that we've examined repentance, let's go back to the text and see what happened to David when he confessed his sin. Verse 5 is the longest and most important verse of Psalm 32. This is the turning point of the psalm where David finally confesses his sin and God forgives his sin completely and immediately. If Psalm 32 is David's testimony of God's forgiving his sin, verse 5 is the heart of his testimony. Likewise, our forgiveness in Christ should be the heart of our testimony. Notice David repeats the three words for sin in verse 5 that we examined in the first two verses. David uses these, ver- these three words to convey, th- convey that he confessed all his sin. Nothing was hidden or held back. This is a fundamental lesson for us. Forgiveness is available to us in Christ if we fully confess our sin and turn away from it towards Christ. Verse 5 also indicates forgiveness comes immediately. Look at what David says. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David's willingness to confess his sin brings immediate forgiveness. In the New Testament, God promises us in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This immediate forgiveness is reminiscent of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Recall, after the son came to his senses and decided to confess his sins to his father, he set out for home. But while he was a long way off, the father saw him and ran to him. And before the son could fully confess his sins to his father and asked to be as one of his hired men, the father welcomed him back fully as his son. This verse gives us tremendous insight into God's nature, who he is, 
God is ready and even yearning for us for, to forgive us and restore us to right relationship with Him. In order to see God's true nature, you only have to consider what He was willing to do to save us. Once David confesses his sin, we see how he responds in verses 6 and 7. Here we find the fulfillment of David's promise in Psalm 51 to teach transgressors God's ways so sinners will return to him. God, David wants all God's people to experience the joy he found after his confession. The therefore in verse 6 links David's encouragement to God's people to the immediate forgiveness that he experienced in verse 5. David instructs all who are godly to pray to God while he may be found. A prayer of repentance will bring immediate forgiveness. As believers, we should not delay in coming to God in repentance. Otherwise, we run the risk of hardening our hearts, as we find in Hebrews 3, 12, and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As a result of his confession, the change in David's attitude towards God is striking when you compare verse 4 to verse 7. Before confessing his sin, David is hiding his sin from God, fearing him, experiencing his heavy hand of burden. After confessing his sin, God is now David's hiding place and a protector in times of trouble. David has moved from fearing God as judge to taking refuge in God as protector and one who surrounds him with shouts of deliverance. Clearly, we see here the impact repentance has had on David. So, we have looked at the blessing of forgiveness and the need for repentance. Now we see the result of repentance in verses 11, or 8 through 11. I will instruct and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. In verses 8 and 9, we have a change in voice. God is now speaking to his people. He promises to instruct and teach us, providing guidance to us in the way we should go. This guidance concerning godly living is given to those who willingly come to him and repent. The Holy Spirit teaches us to obey and walk in the way of righteousness. In addition to his counsel, God promises to keep his eye on us. For those in a right relationship with God, this is very comforting. God says we should be willing to come to him to confess and submit. 
We are not to be stubborn or self-willed, forcing him to use the bit and bridle on us as a horse or, or a mule requires to direct their ways. We should be sensitive to his Holy Spirit and to his word, maintaining a tender conscience that God uses to direct us to paths of righteousness. David concludes the psalm with one final contrast between the wicked and the forgiven. The wicked will experience many sorrows, but God's steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. The righteous are not those who never sin, but rather those who confess their sin and are upright in heart. David began Psalm 32 with how blessed are the forgiven, and he concludes the psalm by encouraging the righteous to be glad in the Lord and rejoice, and for the upright in heart to shout for joy. David's joy over the mercy he's received from God overflows at the end of this psalm, encouraging God's people to rejoice over God's mercy. There is no greater joy than to know that your sins are completely forgiven. John Calvin sums it up this way when he says, David here teaches us that the happiness of men consists only in the forgiveness of sins. Nothing can be more terrible than to have God for our enemy, nor can he be gracious to us in any other way than by pardoning our transgressions. So we have worked our way through this great psalm of David, examining the blessing of forgiveness, the need for repentance, and the result of repentance. All we have left to discuss is how God made this possible. And of course, we see the answer in what Jesus has done for us. David encourages us to offer our prayers of repentance to God. And he has given us a wonderful prayer in Psalm 32. As we have seen, repentance is the key for believers to move from the misery of guilt to the blessedness of forgiveness. On this side of the cross, we now know that Jesus, that God sent Jesus to, to be the way for us to come to him. Last week in Sunday school, we discussed what Jesus says in John 14, 6, when he states, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We go to the Father in repentance, but we get there through Jesus. Without his finished work on the cross, we would be without hope. Jesus' work on the cross establishes the basis for our forgiveness of sin. The burden of sin can be lifted off of the sinner because Jesus bore the weight of sin on the cross. Our sin is covered by his shed blood. Sin is not charged to the person who is in Christ because Jesus paid the penalty. He is our sin bearer. He felt the full impact of the negative consequences for our sins, including the, all the emotional, spiritual, and physical suffering and judgment. After enduring the pain and suffering of the cross, Jesus experienced God's deliverance when he was raised from the dead on the third day and now sits at the right hand of the Father as our high priest. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He trusted himself to God and was delivered. 
He was able to see past the suffering of the cross to the joy that lay beyond it, as it says in Hebrews 12.2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew the day of forgiveness of sin lay on the other side of his work on the cross. He rejoices in his finished work that brings forgiveness of our sin. And we, who have experienced the blessing of forgiveness, should also rejoice in what he has done for us. Psalm 32 is the heart of the gospel, in that God clears the ledger of those who repent, not charging sin to our account, but adding the righteousness of Christ. In this, he restores our relationship with him. And for that, all God's people should shout for joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words you spoke through your servant, King David. Lord, we know we sin way more than we repent. Help us to learn from David's experience, not covering our sin, but being willing to come to you and repent with broken and contrite hearts. Help us not to be like the horse or the mule that need a bit and bridle to have their way directed. Give us hearts that are sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we may repent quickly and completely. Teach us to repent and be more like Jesus who was willing to humble himself even to the point of death on a cross. We ask that the more we repent, the more we find joy in you. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.